Hello, and welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. Michael, Chris, and Candace will be back for a new episode next week. But this week, we are bringing you an interview that I did recently with Kadata Williams, who is an associate professor of history at Wayne State University and host and producer of a new podcast called Seizing Freedom from Virginia Public Media. Seizing Freedom tells the stories of Black Americans during Reconstruction who fought for the everyday freedoms that many of us now take for granted, like the right to decide how to make a living or which causes to support. The show draws from Kadata's research on historical records of formerly enslaved people to bring to light voices that have been muted throughout American history. I talked with Kadata about the road to Reconstruction and the long-standing quest to make America a full-fledged multiracial democracy. If you recall from our post-insurrection episode back in early January, Candace wondered whether the U.S. might be on the precipice of a third Reconstruction. And that's where I begin this conversation with Kadata. If you enjoy this interview, I encourage you to check out Seizing Freedom. You can follow the link in the show notes to seizingfreedom.com or search for the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Here now is my interview with Kadata Williams. Kadata Williams, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So lots to talk about. Um, your upcoming podcast, Seizing Freedom, um, your broader work on Reconstruction, which I think is a really interesting topic to be thinking about right now. And, and I actually want to start with something that um, my colleague and, and co-host on the show, um, Candace Watts-Smith, um, talked about during our episode, our first episode after the January 6th uh, insurrection at, at the U.S. Capitol, she frames a, a lot of what happened that day as kind of a, a counter to the work that, you know, folks like Stacey Abrams in Georgia and, you know, William Barber and the, the Poor People's Campaign had been doing to kind of lay the groundwork for a third Reconstruction. And, and I know that this notion of a third Reconstruction more broadly has gotten a lot of attention um, following the deaths of George Floyd and others um, over this past summer. And so I'm wondering how how you think about this notion of, of a third Reconstruction and whether we might be laying the groundwork for that. Well, I think I would say I believe that we are in need of a third reconstruction, whether or not we're actually there in terms of advancing the rights of African-Americans and other marginalized people in America, I'm not sure. Um, and I'm not sure because of the election and because of what happened at the Capitol and even the sort of reaction to it as, you know, we have all of these calls for unity and reconciliation without accountability, et cetera. So I believe that we are in need of a third reconstruction. I just don't know that we're there. Right. And I mean, I guess the other thing I've been thinking about is even just that the notion of thinking about a, a new reconstruction just leads me to wonder like whether the first two ever were really fully realized. I don't believe that they were fully realized, but I think when we sort of think about that, we've got to be careful. We've got to be honest about 
what made it, you know, sort of like what stopped it from being realized. And in both cases, you've got this reality of a greater um, commitment to whiteness. And so in both, you know, the reconstruction after the Civil War and the second reconstruction, which, you know, is the civil rights movement, there's a larger part of the or a good portion of the white population that is resistant to sharing American freedom that doesn't quite believe in American democracy for all that doesn't really believe that. And so there's a lot of resistance to it. And, you know, when we have not achieved those goals, when we have not um, honored what we put on paper, um, both in the founding and then in the reconstruction era, when we don't do that, when we don't fully commit to it, we never quite get there. And so I think it's important to sort of make sure that we thread that needle because what happened after the first reconstruction is that it got reframed as a failure. And that idea of a failure doesn't really acknowledge what actually happened. And so when I probe people, when I push them to say what failed, what they essentially do is regurgitate the lost cause narrative, which is that Black people failed to live up to the promise of freedom and not the reality, which is that a large portion of the white population was resistant to um, extending American freedom and democracy to more people. And so that also, the, a knowledge of the history of what happened and how it's framed shapes like how I, as a historian, um, experience and sort of observe this current moment, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. And and that's part of the story you're trying to tell on seizing freedom, right? Kind of bringing this out, this, you know, I don't know if, if, if counter narrative is, is the right word, but something that is outside of the sort of the mainstream historical view of, of reconstruction and, and the lost cause and those types of things. Well, it's certainly outside of the the sort of view of the history of Reconstruction that's rooted in the lost cause. The story we're telling is one that historians of the era know quite well. It's the larger public that doesn't know it. So those of us who are professors, we teach this history in our classes, um, but it doesn't trickle down to the masses. And so what the masses have been exposed to is this larger narrative of the era that is rooted on, that is sort of rooted in the lost cause, which essentially erases African-Americans from the history of the war and its aftermath. And it casts them as docile and content in bondage on the one hand and menacing to white women to white women on the other. And so what we as historians know is that if you center African Americans in the history of the war and reconstruction, then you have a more accurate understanding of what actually happened and why. So you get a sense of what freedom actually entailed. Freedom is a larger process. And we try to show that process in the show. And freedom is also something that has to be seized. It's not something that's sort of handed out or awarded to African-Americans. African-Americans have to fight for it. But you only know that if you follow them through the war and Reconstruction. And so that's the story we're trying to tell. We're trying to tell the story of what they want, which is freedom, but what that means to them and why they have to fight for it against the reality of a good portion of the white population's resistance to it, 
or their belief that they as white people should get to dictate to black people what their freedom should look like. What we see in this moment is a backlash to the sort of possibilities of a more multiracial democracy um, that sort of emerge in response to Barack Obama being elected and then the world that the sort of expansion of rights and privileges and freedoms to more people. And so what we see in the election um, and then the aftermath is a backlash to that. And as a historian, I know we've been here before, and I think the audience will be able to see some of those parallels very clearly. Sure. I want to I want to come back to this question of of the ongoing struggle to achieve a, a multiracial, multiethnic democracy. But, it, you know, you bringing up um, some of these these stories of, of violence, I think that ties to your book. They left great marks on me, um, which is an, an, an accounting of, of testimonies of this violence during Reconstruction. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about sort of how how and and when these these testimonies were were given and even just you know the the fact getting to giving them were there even um, you know obstacles to even getting these things down on paper or you know, part of the the record so to speak so one of the things we see after the war as emancipation goes into effect is reprisal violence And so what happens is that a lot of the former slaveholders and those people who wanted to become slaveholders, but I like to say who hadn't gotten their money together yet, um, so they couldn't sort of buy into slavery, what we start to see is them lashing out at African-Americans who are trying to sort of make freedom real. And this is even before they press for things like equal rights, even before they press for citizenship. So... African-Americans, newly freed people are experiencing on a daily basis extreme amounts of violence and retaliation. Um, It's, you know, you see it when soldiers, um, Black soldiers return um, to their former communities to try to reclaim their loved ones. Many of them are attacked and killed. Mm -hmm. Uh, As people try to go about, as people try to leave plantations and farms, they are attacked and killed. And what we start to see is that they report this violence, not necessarily to local authorities who uh, many of them are still, you know, from the former slaveocracy, is they report them to the Freedmen's Bureau, which is the sort of offshoot of the Union war effort. And so you have a lot of military officials who are now overseeing the Freedmen's Bureau. So African-Americans report this violence to them, and then they document their testimonies. They document their accounts. They take affidavits with the hope of possibly trying to get justice for them. So that's where the records are created, but they're created in response to the reprisal violence that African-Americans are already experiencing. And because that violence goes unchecked, what happens is that the former slaveholders, they start to become more organized when they realize that they're not going to pay a price for secession and the war. They do what they can to essentially reestablish slavery in as many ways as possible. And African-Americans fight that they resist it. And so what white supremacists do, what the former slaveocracy does, is it ramps up the violence and you start to see this more paramilitary violence 
that is directed at African-Americans trying to hold on to their freedom and to make freedom real. And so when they are attacked, they continue to report this violence to anyone who will listen, local authorities, state authorities, federal authorities. And then over time, as the violence becomes too difficult to ignore and it starts to undermine the election process, federal officials, particularly in Congress, decide that they want to investigate what's going on. They, they want to sort of, they want to conduct these investigations. And so they invite attacked people to participate in the hearings. And so attacked people go to these different sites and they tell, they, they, they tell their stories. And these stories are really, in my view, they're part of the unmaking of freedom. They're showing the war against freedom and the war that's being waged on Black people by the former Confederates. And so we've got this really important record of the war that hasn't gotten the attention, or excuse me, of um, Reconstruction, excuse me, that hasn't gotten the attention that it deserves. And if you ignore what's going on in this history, then you don't fully understand the rollback of uh, Reconstruction. You don't really understand redemption, et cetera. So we've got this really important historical records of African-Americans telling the story, trying to communicate the violations on them and the violations of the peace. During these the the, the Reconstruction era, I, I, I know you also write about kind of this, um, the about African-American sort of solidifying the the notion of of citizenship and you know what it means for them to be democratic citizens. Can you talk about you know, where that that concept came from and and how if at all it it perhaps evolved over the course of the the reconstruction era? Well, I think that it comes from a larger belief amongst African Americans in their right to enjoy the same rights and privileges as everyone else in the society. And we'll see this earlier in the sort of, um, if we think about the late 18th century and the early 19th century, as you start to see a much larger free Black population. So as after emancipation, in the sort of first wave of emancipation in the North, after the American Revolution, African Americans are gaining their freedom, they're being born free, and then they expect to be able to participate in the American, you know, the sort of American experiment. They expect to be able to enjoy the same rights and privileges as everyone else in the society. They want what's in the Declaration of Independence. They want the rights and privileges spelled out there and in the U.S. Constitution. But what they're finding is that there's a lot of white resistance to it. So there will be white people in the society who will say, well, Black people should be free. They should not be enslaved. But they don't go so far as to agree that Black people should also enjoy the same rights and privileges as everyone else in the society enjoys. And African-Americans argue that they should and that they have a birthright citizenship by virtue of their birth in the United States, that they should enjoy the same rights and privileges as everyone else in society. And so African-Americans have been pressing for this long before the Civil War actually happens. But the war and then Union victory and the willingness of a small sect of radical Republicans 
to listen to them and to try to help make it a reality is what spreads this larger idea amongst more African-Americans about their right to participate in this larger process. Because for them, that's what justice after slavery looks like. So the larger population believes, the larger white population believes that slavery only meant being paid, you know, not being paid for your labor. And we know that that's that's absolutely not true. And African-Americans, both those who were held in bondage or whose parents or grandparents were held in bondage, knew that slavery was so much more than being paid for your labor. And so afterwards, what they want, it's justice. And justice means different things to different people, but there's a lot of overlap there. So justice means having your family, but it also means your right to play a role in this, in, in the political process to determine who's going to set policy over you. It means your authority in governance. It means your ability to decide, to vote for, who's going to set policy shaping the lives of your, you know, of yourself, uh, shaping your own life and the life of people in your family and your community. And so there's a sort of insistent, a refusal to accept no on this reality because You know, they go back to the Declaration, they go back to the Constitution, and they say, this is what you put on paper, and this is what we want. We feel that by virtue of our enslavement and our participation in the war, our support of the Union cause in the war, that this is what we're owed. Right. And, and there's even if, if I understand um, your, your writing in They Left Great Marks on Me correctly, there's even kind of a, a, a questioning of Southern whites and their fitness for citizenship and and kind of starting to get at some of this notion of, wait a second, like, are we really a democracy here or is this really what democracy should be kind of getting at some of these issues of the, you know, having a, a, a flourishing multiracial democracy. Exactly. African-Americans question, you know, they say, because one of the things that they recognize is that even after the war, that ex-Confederates don't necessarily demonstrate any greater fidelity to the nation's founding principles or to the union than they did before and during the war. And that's supported by even... um, Secretary Stanton, Edwin Stanton, after the war, you know, he's reading all of these reports. He's traveling across the region and he's saying that, yes, they stopped fighting on the battlefield, but they don't believe they believe more in the idea of holding on to slavery than they do in union or even reunion. And so African-Americans recognize this and they are frustrated. They are initially concerned and then they're frustrated and outraged by the fact that the larger nation is more interested in reconciliation amongst white people than they are with justice. And so they're very frustrated that a lot of the ex-Confederates and a lot of their supporters are going to get more rights and privileges and respect than Black people do. And so they communicate that, you know, they say apparently it is um, a greater crime to be a Negro than to be a traitor. To bring us back to the sort of present moment, as, as I was reading about sort of these these testimonies in in Congress, I couldn't help but think about like what what would that look like today? Is that still an effective means to get stories 
out there, uh, whether it's, you know, police violence or other issues of, of racial violence that are still very much a part of, of our country today. I, I mean, what do you, what impact might something like that have? And I guess, is it, is it necessary given the fact that we have access to so much more forms of, of media today? You know, anybody can take a video on their phone and have it seen by millions of people throughout the country and, and throughout the world. So I think that we have we certainly have a, a different type of tech, technology, African-Americans, by virtue of their freedom and their ability to participate to a certain degree uh, in the larger political process, uh, African-Americans have a greater audience, especially through social media, to sort of push the, you know, to push the national conversation, to force the media to address um, the reality of the situation in terms of racist violence and police violence in a way that they didn't before. And so, but even as we have that, even as, even as we have access to technology, even as we have video, et cetera, we still have the reality of some people's commitment to whiteness and how that allows them to refuse to know the reality of what's going on. And so, you know, African-Americans today are in a safer position to protest violence than they were in the late 19th or early 20th century. So African-Americans couldn't, you know, especially in the South, they can't stage um, street protests in response to a lynching. Many families, you know, today families can hold a press conference and file a civil suit um, against, you know, um, against police who shoot their loved ones. In the earlier, a century ago, their lives were in danger. They couldn't speak out publicly. And even after their love warrants are taken, many of them were surveilled and or they they didn't feel safe in their communities, communities, so they had to flee and move somewhere else. So what we have today is more access to more information. But what we also have is the reality of the ways that a commitment to whiteness allows people to receive the information in ways that they want. So, and, and this happened in this earlier period too. There were conservative lawmakers who could sit and listen to African-American testimonies of this violence and say, well, nothing really happened to you. Right? Yeah, you're, you're here now, right? You're here talking ex to me. Ex ex exactly. You lived, right? Um, and what's really interesting during the testimonies is that a lot of times, lawmakers use the past tense. So they treat the violence as a discrete event, a one-off. And survivors use the active present tense to communicate that the sort of afterlife of the violence. You know, so they say, what they did is hurting me. It's not something that stopped hurting when the men left. It's continuing to hurt. And I think that what survivors um, of police and racist violence today can show us, like I think about the families, um, the Charleston families from the massacre. What they can do and what they have done is shown us the afterlife to a certain degree of that violence. They are devastated by that violence. And I feel like part of what's happening today is that we don't have a full appreciation of that 
And what we also have, and this is the point that I was making um, before, is that you can have people who will refuse to know about the harm of the violence, who will excuse police violence at any, by any means, or who will treat someone like Dylan Roof as an aberration, which in my view, and I think the view of a lot of people, only allows the violence to continue. I also think too about you know whether bringing putting some of this onto the the country's record if it if it might help at least I, I know you know everybody's kind of media filter bubbles are sort of going to be what they're going to be but I wonder if it might help put lawmakers on the record as as having to react to this in in some way rather than or at least you know forcing them to to kind of grapple with it in in some way to be honest in light of what we saw with the with both impeachments um i you know i think that it might allow some people so i'm not disputing the fact that it could have some good Mm -hmm. um we saw george floyd's brother felonious floyd uh testify Mm -hmm. uh after his killing I don't know. I think that it might persuade some people, but I think that we'll see some of the same reactions by some, um, by potentially some very conservative lawmakers and conservative members of American society react very much the same way conservative lawmakers did during Reconstruction when African-Americans testified before Congress at the Klan hearing. And so I guess what I'm asking is, what does it take? What will it take? for the larger society, the mainstream society, to fully recognize and contend with the reality of the harms of a commitment to whiteness and to white supremacy. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah no, that is that is such such a big question. It actually kind of ties into um, how I wanted to kind of bring us to to a close here. You know, we this this question of you know, can the United States be a flourishing multiracial democracy? Something scholars have been talking about for for decades, if 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 not longer. And I I know that historians are not typically in the the prediction business, but I, I'm I'm just wondering where you sort of come down on that bigger question, given everything that you know, all the the work that you've done about this history and the, you know, trials and, and, and tribulations that Black people have experienced heretofore? I will say that I am hopeful, but also very realistic. So I, to be honest, like I'm worried. Um, and I'm worried not because of anything that Black people have said or done, I'm worried because of the larger white society's commitment to whiteness. And so I just don't know that that the people who are committed to whiteness will surrender their commitment to whiteness in order to protect our democracy. I just don't know that that's going to happen. Um, and I know that Black and other um, marginalized people will pay the price for that. And so on the one hand, I'm hopeful, but on the other hand, as a historian and as a uh, as an African-American woman, I'm concerned. You know, I think that 
uh, your your podcast will certainly, I think, help folks kind of grapple with with some of the the stories and hear some of this history that they might not have heard otherwise, and and will perhaps be a first step on that journey. Well, we will leave it there. Uh, Kidada, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jenna. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.